0: Hey friends, it's so good being with you today. We're talking today from Acts 13 about sending, about being sent, and, and Woodbine is such a model of that for me. Just look around and look at the people that are here and look at the flags that are hanging. We are an Acts 13 community, and we're going to unpack exactly what that means. When I was six years old, growing up in San Jose, California, my parents walked into my room and they said, uh, we've got some big news, um, but you can't tell anybody. Now, why they assumed they could tell me this big news, and I wouldn't tell anyone, and they informed me when I was six years old that our family would be moving because we were going to become missionaries. We were going to be moving to the Caribbean, and, and they just promised that I would not tell anybody. And so the next Sunday, I walk into Sunday school, and I Proceed to tell the class the following. Now, I have a secret, and I can't tell you what it is, but I'll tell you this much, you are really going to miss me. So you see, Carol, I was obnoxious from a very, very young age. When Doug called me and said if I would preach from Acts 13, I said, absolutely, because if you have any background in missions, you know that Acts chapter 13 is a really big deal. Uh, Winston Churchill, the famous British wartime leader and prime minister, was also a prolific author, and he wrote a lot about history. And he called certain times and moments in history, he called them hinges of history. Certain places and points and people in time that are so important that what they did then reverberates now. Now. And I would say that what happens in Acts 13 doesn't just reverberate now. We here today are part of that continuing story. So stand with me, if you would, as we read the first three verses of Acts chapter 13. And then I'm going to tell you some of the rest of the story as the chapter continues. So in the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Menean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, as they were ministering to the Lord or worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them to. Then, after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Pray with me. God said simple verses with such incredible, monumental, historic impact. And we, your children, your sons and daughters here today, we continue that story. So as we gather together, help us also know how to scatter. So that all around the world, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, can know the joy of experiencing you as Lord and Savior just as we do this very day. Thank you for the examples of the church at Antioch and what it means for us today. And we pray all of this in your good and awesome and sending name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So let me tell you some of the rest of the story. When Barnabas and Saul are sent off by the church at Antioch, where do they go? Well, Acts 13 continues to tell us that they set off for the island of Cyprus. Barnabas was from Cyprus. And it says that the Holy Spirit sent them off in verse 4. In verse 3, it says the church sent them off. But in verse 4, it says that the Holy Spirit sent them off. So you see this incredible blend of God's sovereignty. Look what God is orchestrating. But you also see this beautiful example of our responsibility and our response. So the church has a role. They're sending Barnabas and Saul off. And the Holy Spirit is with them as they go. So they go to Cyprus. And Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that John Mark, Barnabas' cousin, was with them on this part of what is Paul's first missionary journey. And they go to Cyprus, and they go to the synagogues all throughout the island, preaching the word of God. And they get to this one particular town, and there is a Jewish sorcerer there named Elamos who goes by the name of Bar-Jesus, Bar is the prefix for the word son of. So he was claiming to be a follower of Jesus, but he was a sorcerer. Now, this sorcerer, Elemas, he worked for the Roman governor of the island. This governor, Luke tells us, his name is Sergius. Now, Sergius hears that Barnabas and Paul have come to town. And he sends for Barnabas and Paul because he wants to hear the word of the Lord. But the sorcerer, his aide... Doesn't want Sergius to know the word of the Lord. And Luke tells us that he opposed them and tried to prevent Barnabas and Saul from speaking to the Roman governor, Sergius. And so Paul looks at this Jewish sorcerer and says, You are the son of the devil. You are making crooked the right ways of God. You are full of deceit and trickery and, and perversion. In fact, the Lord's hand is against you and you are going to go blind for a time and not even the light of the sun you will see. And at that, a mist and a darkness comes over this sorcerer. Now, the governor, Sergius, is watching all of this. And he is so amazed at the teaching of God's word that Paul was sharing with him that he placed his faith in Jesus. And then verse 13 of chapter 13, it says that Paul and his companions set off from Cyprus and then continued their journey. So friends, what is so significant of Acts chapter 13? Prior to Acts chapter 13, we have other cross-cultural encounters of the gospel. Earlier in Acts, we see that Philip encounters the Ethiopian right on the road and baptizes him, but this is the first time that the people of God together identify and send off some of God's servants on a particular task. Acts chapter 11 tells us that the church in Antioch was the first church comprised primarily of Gentiles, not Jews who had come to faith in Jesus, but Gentiles who had come to faith in Jesus. Unless you grew up Jewish, that is a big deal, right? Because what we know is that the gospel is for all people. It was at the church at Antioch that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. And you'll also notice that when this chapter opens, five church leaders are identified, including Barnabas and Saul. You'll note at the beginning of this account, Paul is called Saul. But by verse 13, it switches, and from here on out, Saul is called Paul. So it's this story that is one of these hinges, where Saul, who has already met Christ, he's listed as a prophet and teacher in chapter 13, verse 1, but this is where he gets his apostolic commission, and Paul and Barnabas transition from prophet and from teacher and leader, and they become apostles. And what does this word apostle mean? It's the same root word from where we get our word post. To post a letter is to send a letter. So an apostle is a messenger. An apostle is the sent one. In Christian history, it is the apostles who are the missionaries that are taking the gospel to where it's never been given. And we see hints of this leading up in the prior 12 chapters of Acts. But in Acts 13, what we just read, this is where things explode. And you have this church of Gentile Christians, the first people to be called Christians. And what are they doing? They are worshiping and they are fasting. Now, why is that word fasting so important? If you grew up Baptist, you may not be as familiar with this concept of fasting. But fasting is what you do when you are desperate to know what God wants you to do. Fasting is what you do when you know you need direction. And so what you do is you interrupt the regular rhythms of your life, i.e. food, and you just concentrate on seeking the Lord. So they weren't only worshiping, they were fasting. They knew God was up to something, and they knew that God wanted them to go deeper, broader, but maybe they didn't know exactly what. So they're worshiping. They're fasting. God honors their obedience, their seeking heart, and he shows up and he tells them exactly what he wants to have happen. He has in mind particular people and he has in mind a particular task. And he says, set apart Barnabas and Paul because I've got something that I want them to do. It doesn't appear as if he gave the church at Antioch a bunch of details, but they seem to be unanimous in sensing that God was speaking and had an assignment for Barnabas and Saul. So they set apart Barnabas and Saul. They lay hands on them. If you're a part of Woodbine, you know how many times we've done that, right? For people here who we have identified and, and the Spirit has confirmed and the Spirit has been working in their lives and we pray for them and we send them off and they're away from us. But these flags remind us to remember those that we've sent out from this place and the peoples to whom they are going with the same word and the same message that Paul and Barnabas took with them from the church at Antioch to the island of Cyprus. And the story goes on that they head for Cyprus. Why Cyprus? Did, did God tell them specifically to go to Cyprus? He could have. Or maybe as Paul and Barnabas discussed, what seems best to you? But being Spirit-filled, we can be sure that the Spirit directed them in whatever way he saw fit. Barnabas was from Cyprus, so he had a network there, quite possibly. John Mark, Barnabas's cousin and relative goes with them and they get to the island of Cyprus. This is the first official recorded missionary journey in history. That's why I invite you this week, go back, read chapter 13 of Acts. This is where this part of God's plan for the world really picks up steam. Maybe you're familiar that When Jesus, after he had been resurrected, he appears to his disciples. And before he ascends into heaven, he gives his disciples, the disciples, that means a follower or a learner, the apostles, those who are sent with a message. All apostles are disciples, but not necessarily all disciples. Apostles, excuse me, all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are necessarily apostles. So Jesus says to His disciples, He gives them what we call the Great Commission, you are to go into all the world and and preach the gospel, I will be with you, and you will start in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This, my friends, Acts 13, is where the ends of the earth starts. They've already been in Judea, they've been in Samaria, and so this is sort of the launch of the last phase of the Great Commission, which you and I are still a part of today. And so, they get to this particular town on the island of Cyprus named Paphos. And there is the Roman governor named Sergius. So, what is it about God calling us to an assignment that we just sort of assume that if we are obedient and we're going to make sacrifices that God owes us an easy time of it. So they are full of the Holy Spirit. Not only are they sent by the Spirit, they have the Spirit with them. And immediately they get to this town. And they are met with great opportunity, but they are also met with great opposition. And it's someone who knows better, someone who was born Jewish, this man, this sorcerer, Elemas who would have had a background in the one true God. He becomes the opposition. And he tries to steer his boss, this Roman governor, away and not pay attention to the teaching of Barnabas and Saul. And Saul, who is becoming Paul, looks right at this opposer and says, you son of the devil, full of deceit and trickery, You're trying to make crooked what God has made right, clear, and straight. And isn't it fascinating that of all the follow-up actions that Paul could have taken, and this is Paul's first miracle, by the way. He's not just a prophet and a teacher. You see him growing into his role as apostle on par with Peter, who has been the focus of the prior 12 chapters, and now you're going to see Paul emerge as the focus of the rest of the book of Acts. How did Jesus get Paul's attention on that road to Damascus earlier in Acts? He was blinded. And what does Paul do with this sorcerer, this perverter of the gospel? He blinds him. But isn't it ironic that maybe, just maybe, there's a tinge of hope in this condition because (laughs) Paul says, you're going to be blinded, but just for a while. You see, Paul had recovered his sight, right? And now 10 and 11 years later, he's been sent out by this church and he encounters another opposer of the gospel. Paul, when he was Saul, he was a great persecutor of God's faithful. But look what God did in his life. And so now he meets this man. And, and Paul can only see what's right in front of him. But as he blinds the man, or as he informs the man, that God is going to blind him so much so that a mist and a darkness comes over his eyes. He can't even see the light of the sun. It's just for... little while. And one of the things I look forward to when I get to heaven, I I hope maybe Elamas is there. Maybe the church that was established in this city on the island of Cyprus, maybe after he regained his sight, he had a similar journey like Paul did, and he literally saw the light, right? Both physically and spiritually. And he became part of the solution, not just Part of the problem. And this Roman governor, Sergius, he's intelligent. He wants to listen to what Barnabas and Paul has to say. And do you notice as the story ends, the governor is watching this encounter between Paul and Elemas. But it says what captivated him and what caused him to believe was not the miracle, but the word, the message that Paul was delivering. What was it? So was Paul an eloquent teacher? We know he was. Luke tells us he was. We know that Paul is a good writer. Almost half of the New Testament was written by Paul. We know that this guy knows how to communicate. What was it? That Paul would have said to Sergius that so captivated Sergius that he was willing to leave his pagan background and belief system. And he was a power broker, so he would have had a lot to lose, right? What empowered Sergius to leave all of that behind? The power of the word. And Luke does not record what exactly Paul said to Sergius. But this week when you study Acts 13, in later verses a sermon of Paul is recorded, and I wonder if it's familiar. But what would have captivated Sergius so much? Hearing the story of of Jesus the Son of God who left his status in heaven, Philippians chapter 2 who did not consider equality with God anything to be held on to, but released his privilege to come to earth, to live the perfect sinless life, to not only teach, preach, and heal, and be a moral teacher, but to die on a cross, so that through his death and then subsequent resurrection, death has no power over those who place their trust in him, and that not only will God give you, Sergius, eternal life, but God through Jesus will actually live his life through you. So it's no longer you that live, but Christ in you. And that message for Sergius is the same winsome message that has brought each of you who call Jesus Lord and Savior. You have been captivated by that. That church in Antioch was captivated by that. But as I close, please remember as we prepare for communion that the gospel that has come to you must flow through you, that you, as a child of God, are called to be a river, not a pond. What makes a pond not a river? It's all inflow. It's no outflow. The church at Antioch was worshiping and fasting. And did they do it because they loved each other and they loved God? Absolutely. But the natural response to worshiping and fellowshipping together is to ask, how do we get sent? So who from here gets sent far away? Nick and Bree. When I went to Brentwood Baptist 20 years ago, one of the first people that said, here I am, send me, is Ashley, who's sitting right there. And since that time, look how God has moved. And look at at the dozens, the hundreds that have been sent. And would by never lose that sending culture. You know, we tend to think that we have to make these Binary choices that if we sin, we're not going to take care of people here. Listen, the best way to take care of people here is to maintain a sending culture. Because that is who God is. He is a sending God. And as we are obedient to that, as we send, he brings others into our family. And they get nurtured and they get sent. Whether it's to Oman or to Jordan or to South Africa or if it's to volunteer at Project Connect or begin anew, things that happen right here. God is a sending God. And God's people are meant to be sending people. And so we come to the communion table today to celebrate and to remember that the same message that so captivated Sergius, and by the way, I'm not a big archaeology student, but in the 1870s, 150 years ago, A tablet was found in the ruins of that city. And the name Sergius Paulus, governor of that island, was written in stone. I don't need archaeology to prove that the Bible is true. But it's kind of cool when archaeology does prove that the Bible is true. The Bible is not a myth, a fable. This happened in real time with real people, and 2,000 years later, we have reaped the fruit of the unselfishness of the Antioch Church. And Lord willing, we replicate the unselfishness of the Antioch Church as we worship, yes. As we fast, yes. As we enjoy time together, yes. But ultimately, for what purpose? To send. Because the message that has come to us must flow through us. So as we prepare for communion, if you belong to God, this table belongs to you. A dear friend of mine that mentored me and helped me try to attempt to have a missions mindset. I love it because he calls this the table of the not good. You know, all the other world religions, it's all about being good enough to get to God. So so the table represents intimacy and fellowship with the Lord, right? That he invites you, you're part of his family, come to the banqueting table. But we just don't feast on worldly food. We feast on his life himself because this was the only way to make us right with God. And so he invites us to the table but where all the other religions of the world would say, you got to work really hard, and hopefully you might be good enough to come to the table. This table is only for the people who know they're not good enough, and who know that it is only through the death and resurrection of Jesus and the Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost, that came on the church at Antioch, that is here in us today, makes this possible. So if you are not yet part of the family of God, my prayer is that you would be so captivated by the message that so captivated Sergius that not even a Jewish sorcerer could keep him from faith. And that maybe thousands of years later, someone might uncover your name because you are part of the story as well. Let's pray together. Our dear and gracious Father, the same God that stirred that church is stirring in us today. Thank you for this table. The table of the not good. In your name I pray. Amen.